We continue our study in the parables. Last Sunday, we looked at the parable of the great banquet as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 14. It's a parable that was told in the house of a Pharisee uh, during a meal to which Jesus had been invited. But in many ways, this meal seemed to be a setup. They wanted to see what Jesus would do. The passage breaks down into three parts. The first part is when a sick man is brought in, a man who has a medical condition, and people are watching to see if, what Jesus will do. Will he heal this man? Apparently they know that he can. The issue is, will he, because it is the Sabbath day. And Jesus asked them, you know, you guys are the experts, you're the Pharisees, the experts in the law. Is it okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They don't answer him. Because if they say, no, it's not, then they seem to be heartless men that they really are. If they say yes, then this would seem to go contrary to what they believed about the Sabbath. Jesus heals the man, and again, he asks them a question, to which the answer is obviously yes. If your ox or if your son falls into the well, will you in fact not do everything you can to get it out, even though it is on the Sabbath? After this, Jesus notices that people are sort of jockeying for positions. They, it's, a, it's a meal, and they're trying to get into the best places, the places of honor. And he gives them what I would call kingdom wisdom. He tells them, basically, it is better to be humble than humiliated. It's better to start out at a lower position and have the host bring you up to a higher position than to start up somewhere high. And the host says, I'm sorry, that's for somebody else, and you have to go someplace lower and be humiliated as a result. The principle seems accessible enough. It seems to make sense, clear enough. But Jesus is not finished. Humility is, in fact, a kingdom virtue, but it is not the only virtue. It is not to stand alone. It is to be accompanied by generosity. And so Jesus continues, this is the third part of the passage, with the parable of the great banquet, which I won't review at this point. Instead, I do want us to consider a similar parable in our passage today in Matthew chapter 22. If you would look, we'll read the first 14 verses here in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have, have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding, was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. 
think when I first read this in preparation for this, several things struck me. The first is the harshness of this parable, particularly in verses 11 through 13. A person is invited to a wedding. The original guest refused to come. And so he sends his servants out to gather people in. They come in. And there is a man who apparently is not properly dressed for the wedding feast. He is bound hand and foot and thrown out into the darkness. This hardly seems fair. It doesn't seem to be like something we would expect to come from Jesus or any of his followers. The second thing that struck me is the violence of this parable. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Certainly don't find this in Luke's account. He simply goes out and gets new guests. He doesn't kill anybody because they don't show up. The third thing that struck me is that the host in this version, and here in Matthew 22, is a king. In Luke's version, he's simply a certain man who had a great banquet. And that was a banquet, whereas here we have, in fact, a wedding banquet. And then the last thing I think that struck me is verse number 14. And interestingly enough, I'm not alone in this. Uh, a lot of people want to know, why is it there? What does it mean? And in fact, should it be there? For many are invited, but few are chosen. But before we get into the parable, I want us to consider some things. First of all, I'm convinced that what we studied last week in Luke 14 and this parable are not the same parable. Um, they're simply not the same parable. Um, the general structure is similar. The central principle is the same. But otherwise, there is very little correspondence in the wording. In Greek, not that we do Greek, but for those who do, there are 223 words found in this passage here in Matthew. Only 12 words out of 223 match what you find in Luke 14. One would think just in a normal conversation, you'd have a, a larger match than that. So these are very, very different stories. Luke is very specific about the context. Jesus is at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Um, Matthew is not so clear. In fact, we have to go back to chapter 21 of Matthew, which begins with what we know as Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And then he goes to the temple. There are a series of confrontations in which he gives a number of parables, the parable of the two sons, where the father says to his son, go work for me. And the son says, no, I won't. But then he does that parable, and then the parable of the tenants. And then, chapter 22, we come to this third parable, the parable of the wedding banquet. This passage is followed by a series of questions by those who oppose Jesus. Should they pay taxes to Caesar? Um, What about marriage after the resurrection? What is the greatest commandment? So we're not given as much context, I would argue, with Matthew's passage. These are the last days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. That much we know. And it takes place in the temple. We know that. But there doesn't seem to be specific questions that lead up to this specific parable. So I'm arguing that what we studied last week and what we're going to study today are not the same parable. But I think we need to consider something that oftentimes we don't. What was the nature of Jesus' ministry? Do we somehow imagine that he was sort of a walking 
recording of parables, and everywhere he went, he said exactly the same thing. I would argue that he didn't. That, in fact, he told certain parables over and over again, but he might have tweaked them, he might have changed them a bit, depending on the context. Because he isn't simply telling a story to tell a story. He, in fact, wants to make the application to a specific situation, the people that he's talking to. So you can find, though we only find it recorded once in the Gospels, I'm convinced that these parables are given on a number of occasions in different contexts, and they, he adapts them for each situation. So a parable like that of the great banquet was given in the house of a Pharisee. It is a challenge to his contemporaries to say, listen, you people think this is the way things are. And in fact, you are rejecting the invitation. And as a result, someone will take your place. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have in watching various films that attempt to record the life of Jesus and tell us about Jesus. We have Jesus sort of verbatim and some of them giving the parables or saying things that come right out of the Gospels. And they're like, really? I mean, it seems so wooden. It seems so unnatural. But then I've seen other movies where they're not exactly the way they are in the Gospels. And I'm like, wait a minute. You've tinkered with the words. Why did you change them? Um, apparently, there's no pleasing me in, in that regard. I think that Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son more than once. And I think he didn't tell it exactly the same way every time he told it. Uh, and I think we need to appreciate that. So that when we look at the parable, like we did last week in Luke 14, and this parable, they are, in fact, not the same parable, though they have the same central thrust, because the context is different. The situation is different. The central principle guiding each parable that we see last week and today is the great reversal. The image or the background against which Jesus presents this principle is that of a banquet. In Luke, it is a great banquet. Here it is a wedding banquet. And as we saw last week in the Old Testament, the idea of a great feast, of a great banquet at the end of time, was very strong in the Jewish consciousness that this is when Israel and God would be reconciled and they would enter into his joy, into his presence, and it would be seen in, in that of a great feast. Let me read to you what I did last week from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now the first part might seem strange to us, but it's the last part that we are familiar with. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. We hear similar words. I mentioned this last week in Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This seems to point to the end of human history. When God's people are brought into his eternal presence, the old order is passed away. And this is signified with a great banquet. 
And in Old Testament thinking and Jewish thinking, this is very, very prominent. So when Jesus tells a parable about a great banquet, his listeners are there. They understand. Yeah, okay, you're talking about something at the end of time. We should also remember that what we find a couple chapters before what I just read from Revelation in Revelation 19, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here now in our parable in Matthew 22, we have a wedding banquet. The story seems direct enough. There is a king. His son is getting married. The king prepared a wedding banquet to celebrate his son's marriage. By the way, in the Jewish tradition, uh, they didn't do ceremonies as we do with this exchanging of rings or speaking of vows. They simply had a lot of food and invited everyone to come in. And at the end of the feast, the couple were married. And so his son is getting married and there's going to be a great wedding banquet. The servants are sent out in this account with the second invitation. You may remember from last week that there are two invitations. The first is to say, we're going to be having a banquet sometime soon. The second invitation is, okay, today's the banquet. Everything is ready. You need to come because the food is ready and we're going to have the banquet. The first invitation, if you wish, sort of required an RSVP. And the second one was, well, okay, now is the time to come. In this parable, the invitees refuse to come to the wedding banquet. Unlike what we saw last week, they don't make excuses. They simply refuse to attend. Well, in essence, we then have a third invitation because the first group of servants that went out with the second invitation are ignored. So the king sends more servants to bring these people in. And he gives them a description of what is offered. This is in verse 4. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. I found it interesting what one commentator said. The king almost puts himself in a position of weakness by saying he, he's trying to entice them to come. He's the king. When the king tells you to come, you should come. But he's almost saying, please, I've, I've got everything ready. Everything. Why don't... Come on, please come to the banquet. Well, some people ignored these servants and others do other things. Um, they seize his servants. They mistreat them. And they kill them. And it is at this point, at least for me, that I begin to get a sense that something political is going on here. Um, it's one thing to refuse the invitation of a king. I think you're on thin ice when you do that. But to mistreat and kill his servants seems to indicate real hostility. And we would say this is even a revolutionary act. You're saying to the king, I don't want to come to your banquet for your son. And if you send any more people to tell me about this, I'm going to kill them. That is to say, I do not recognize your authority and please don't bother me again. Well, the king is infuriated. He is enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And here, those who are invited are viewed differently. Um, they are murderers, which in fact they are. They had in fact been honored invitees previously. But because of what they have done, they are put to death. They are killed by the king's armies. And they are identified with the city. This is something new. 
and I think in Jewish thinking, when you say city, people think Jerusalem. Everything else is a town. You have one city, and that is Jerusalem. At this point in the parable, we find what we find in Luke 14. A banquet is prepared. Those who were invited did not come. And servants are sent out to invite anyone that they can. But there is a difference here. In Luke 14, the host said, go out and find the the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then there's a second gathering. They brought these people in, and there are even more. And then he says, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Here in this parable, in Matthew 22, the king tells his servants, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Then we are told that the servants brought in all kinds of people, good and bad. This is striking. This is quite striking. There's a great reversal. Those who were invited did not come. And we would assume that in some ways they held an honored place in society because the king had personally invited them. So now they are gone. And now we have those who had not been invited. Anyone who had not been invited is now brought in to the wedding feast. But why the good and the bad? As uncomfortable as we might be, it's not politically correct to speak of the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. But here we have a moral component, the good and the bad. Um, What is Jesus saying? What is he saying about the kingdom? Because if you look at verse number two, this parable is the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he tells this parable. So is he saying that the kingdom of heaven includes both good and bad people? Leaving aside for a moment that there's no one that is good. Okay, we'll set that aside for another discussion. We should instead follow the analogies that we see in other parables. The sheep and the goats, where there is a division. The parable of the wheat and the weeds, found in Matthew 13. Those who belong and those who do not. So in this parable, in the wedding banquet given by the king, those who were invited did not come. Those brought in included those who were good and those who were bad. As the story continues, the king comes in, presumably to greet his guests. Thank you for coming. Look at my son and his bride. Isn't this a wonderful occasion? And he happens to notice that there is someone there not wearing wedding clothes. In a Jewish tradition, this simply means wearing clean clothing. That you had taken the time to clean up and you were wearing something uh, clean. It didn't have to be fancy particularly if you brought in people from all over, but it had to be clean. If you come in dirty clothes to a wedding banquet, it shows contempt for the king and his banquet. But somehow, this man got in wearing dirty clothes. When questioned, he has no answer. He is speechless. The king has an answer. He tells his servants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does this all mean? What is this parable about? What is Jesus saying about the kingdom of God? I would suggest to you the following, that when John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth began to preach the gospel, they preached the kingdom of God is at hand. 
and they preached it to the Jewish people. In this parable, they are the original invitees. Without taking it too far, the coming of Jesus into the world is in fact that second invitation. Throughout the Old Testament, God had told his people that Messiah was coming. There's going to be a banquet. Okay, They had been told the first invitation had been given. And now Jesus is here. Everything is ready. Jesus is calling them to be reconciled to God. And in, in line with this parable, the original invitees refused. They paid no attention. They seized his servants, those announcing the Messiah. They mistreated his servants. They killed his servants. The result, in a word, will be judgment. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. It would happen again within 40 years in 70 A.D. when the Romans would destroy the second temple. Jesus came. Everything is ready. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the experts in the law ignore him. They refuse to acknowledge him. So we come to verse number nine, verse eight, I'm sorry, eight and nine. It's the great reversal. This is the great reversal. The wedding banquet is ready. In other words, I am here, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. Those who had previously, as we saw last week, who were on the outside, Now things are turned upside down. Those who were the original invitees are out. And those who were out are now in. They are now in the kingdom of God. It's interesting that verse number 9 begins with the same words that we find in chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission. I think more because of the King James, we think of the word therefore. Therefore, go to all the world. Here it is, so go. This is not a coincidence. I mean, Jesus is making a point that sending his servants out into the world is, in fact, to call people to become disciples of the kingdom of God. In verse number 10, we are told that they gathered all the people they could find. The word for gathered has the same root word as synagogue, an assembly. It is the church. I think Jesus is being as clear as he can possibly be in a parable. Both good and bad. I think this points to the graciousness of the gospel. It's grace and non-discrimination. It's distinctive openness to outcasts, to failures, to problem people, to the unimpressive, to the flawed, to the people you wouldn't normally invite to a wedding banquet. And I think we should include what we see in Luke's account, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What is striking about this is that at the time Jesus was speaking, if you went out into the desert, there was a community of Jews, the Essenes, in Qumran. And in Qumran, you could not attend their meetings if there was something wrong with you. Those who were flawed, whether morally or physically, if there was something wrong with you, you couldn't be part of the group. And when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven... 
These are precisely the people that are brought in. This is the great reversal. The flawed are brought in. And those who think themselves to be perfect, in fact, are put out. They are not part of the kingdom of God. And then comes judgment at the end of all things. And here we come to the verses that I think, generally speaking, we'd rather skip. It's the verses 11 through 13. When the king comes in and he sees a man not wearing wedding clothes. And then he has him thrown out. Certainly troubling. I would point out that the king addresses the man as friend. That is, he does not come with a certain hostility. He's not confronting him with a sort of a sternness like, what's up? But he says, friend, uh, how did you get in here? How did you get in here not wearing the proper clothing? What the man lacks is appropriate Commentators have written a great deal about what wedding clothes refers to here. Let me give you some of the suggestions. One is good works, that the man came without good works. And this is because of Revelation 19, when it speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And then in parenthesis, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So commentators have said this man didn't have any good works and that's why he is thrown out. But I would point out that what we read in Revelation 19 is not about an individual, it's about the church, the people of God as a whole. Some say it refers to repentance. Some say it refers to salvation. From Isaiah 61, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Some say that it refers to love. Others, the righteousness of Christ. As enticing as each of these might be, I think they miss the point. That somehow they're trying to to find a direct correspondence between every part of the parable uh, and that that must refer to something specific. One writer put it this way, precise identification is both impossible and inappropriate. What is important is that the man made no preparation to wear something fitting to the feast he chose to attend. If he is representative, he mirrors all the unrighteous who have made no preparation for God's judgment. This is how I see it. In light of the great reversal in which those who are on the in are put out and those who are out are put in, you might be tempted to think, well, if, that, if everything is turned upside down, then all bets are off. Then, in fact, there are no rules. I can do what I want. Since I'm an outsider and I've been brought inside to the wedding feast, I don't have to dress appropriately. I can do whatever I want. And Indeed, there have been a number of strains in the church tradition that have said exactly that. That grace means I can do whatever I want. I've been given this gracious invitation. God has turned the world upside down. He's invited sinners to be his people. Therefore, it means I can do whatever I want. And this parable tells us that is simply not the case. We see this in other parables. And the Lord willing, we will see them in the weeks to come. The parable of the sheep and the goats. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. That in fact, there are those who are part of the congregation 
We would say those who are part of the church, of the kingdom of God. And when we get to the final judgment at the end of time, there will be, in fact, a great separation. And those who thought that they were in, in fact, will be out. You see, grace does not mean I can do whatever I want. When the king invites you to a banquet, you should come. And you should come prepared. And this man did not. God in his grace has called us. This puts on us, it lays on us a great duty to respond to his call. The invitation of grace brings with it a great demand. But the parable is not finished yet, at least in my opinion. We come to verse number 14. And I must tell you that there are some people who say that verse 14 sort of hangs by itself. It doesn't belong to the, this parable or the one that comes after. Um, I'm convinced it's part of the parable because when we began studying the parables, we saw at least well, two of the things I mentioned is that they often contain elements of reversal. So in Luke 18... It is a tax collector who goes home justified, not the Pharisees. In Luke 10, it is the Samaritan who is the neighbor to the man who fell among thieves, not the priest, not the Levite. And in the parables of Jesus, the crucial matter is usually at the very end. And I don't think verse 13 is the end. One person has observed that the end of Jesus' parables oftentimes have something that are like a punchline. That you're going along with the story and at the end you have a punchline that catches you off guard because it's not what you expected. It, I mean, there are enough strange things going on in the parable, but just at the point where you think, okay, got it. I understand what this is about. And then Jesus throws a curveball at you and it's a punchline. And that's what verse number 14 is. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Perhaps more familiar to you is what we hear in the King James or in the English Standard Version, the ESV. For many are called, but few are chosen. I think this proverb ties together the three parts of this parable. The original invitees who refused to come. Those who did come, the good and the bad. And then the man who came without wedding clothes. Coming at the end of this parable, I think this proverb is a shock to the original listeners. And I think perhaps to us, too, if we would think about it. In the story, the invitees don't come. Okay, well, that's not us. Okay, the servants go out and say, basically, the Messiah is here. The banquet is ready. Come on in. So we would say, okay, here we are. We're the people of God. One guy doesn't show up dressed properly. So he gets tossed. So you're thinking, okay, well, chances are, odds are, I'll make it in. Only one person got tossed. I'm safe. But what happens? Jesus throws something at us, a curve. Many are called, few are chosen. The reality is the man who is tossed out of the banquet represents far more than one individual. In fact, one would argue he represents the majority of people. 
Few are chosen, few are allowed to stay at the banquet. I think this statement offends people, whether they recognize it or not. Because deep down, don't we wonder, don't people wonder, couldn't God just be a nice God and not hold anyone accountable? Couldn't he just sort of do an ollie ollie income free? I mean, what is this, this stuff with judgment? I mean, he invites us and we're there. And so what's the problem? One writer gives, I think, a wonderful answer. Without the concept of judgment, one does not even need salvation. And any urgency about life and its importance, about justice, or even about God is, if not lost, at least greatly diminished. Grace is only grace if the outcome should have been otherwise. It's a wonderful statement. Grace is only grace if the outcome should have been otherwise. And the significance of life depends on accountability for life. We may not like judgment, but it is a central and necessary message of both Testaments and especially of Jesus' teaching. In some ways, a part of me prefers the parable that we studied last week. It's sort of an ollie ollie income free. These people didn't want to come. They're making excuses. Fine. They're not in. The rest of y'all, come on in. This parable is sticks in the throat. Because not only does he not say to those who refuse to come, forget you guys, he goes out and has them put to death. Then when people do come into his wedding feast, he then makes judgments. I mean, one would think that this guy who showed up in dirty clothes would have been better off not showing up at all. But he responded to the invitation. Doesn't hardly seem fair. But the reality is God in his grace in creation in the gospel has been calling people, come home. Everything is ready. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is here. Come on in. And either people ignore him or make excuses. Or they may in fact come in and say, well, I'm set. Only one guy in the parable got tossed. I'm, I'm pretty secure. Instead of having a sense of God's grace and that his grace calls us to be his people, disciples of Jesus. And not simply to do whatever we want. I think radical world, words in the culture we live in today. The idea that somehow God would make demands of us. That, that as disciples of Jesus, we can't do what we want. That if we're a disciple of Jesus, we can't say to him, you're not the boss of me. One commentator said about the parable in Luke 14, it is a park. This parable is a labyrinth. It really makes us think. By God's grace and by his spirit, may that be precisely what we do. Let's pray together. Father, in our thinking, it usually is all about us. Either we go our own way or we take your way and make it about us. And so we take your grace to mean that 
Yes, there's been a great reversal and we can do whatever we want. The idea that you are the king. We sang that in our opening hymn today. That we are your subjects. We are disciples of Jesus. Therefore, we cannot do simply as we please. Seems so foreign to us. Seems even cruel or unfair. But you made us. And we only find who we are in you. By your spirit, may we in the days to come think about this most difficult parable. May we be thankful for the grace you have shown in each of our lives. We pray for Tom and Anne as they travel to Italy that you would keep them safe. May it be a time of rest and relaxation for them. For my mom, who will be traveling to Manila to work on her visa, that you would keep her safe as well. For Ruth, who will be traveling next weekend. For Rosa, who struggles with a cold. We remember all of these and may we continue to pray for them. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.